Welcome to the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Anne Louise Gittleman is a New York Times bestselling author of over 37 books on diet, detox, the environment, and women's health. For more than four decades, Anne Louise has been regarded as a leading voice and visionary in nutrition and who has fearlessly stood on the front lines of holistic and integrative medicine. For more information, check out annlouise.com. That's A-N-N-L-O-U-I-S-E.com. And here's your host, Anne Louise Gittleman. Hi, everyone. Anne Louise Gittleman here for First Lady of Nutrition Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and listening to us once again. Won't you please leave us a review? We're trending all over the place, and I'm so excited that this little podcast is growing and growing. And we've grown so much that I have a wonderful new guest today, Brenda Stockdale, who's going to talk about how to beat the odds. So before I introduce Brenda Stockdale, the harbinger of hope, I'm going to thank our Unikey Health System support system because they are our sponsors with the best supplements under the sun because I helped to create them, my friends, with 40 years of perseverance and experience. So there you have it. Welcome to Unikey Health Systems and welcome to Brenda Stockdale. Brenda Stockdale, I consider you the harbinger of hope. You're the angel of hope. Tell us what you do in this world, my dear. Oh, well, you know, I love those words because we now know that hope has a real biological foundation. I love that. And yes. And your recent investigations, um, Harvard, a, a wonderful um, doctor by the name of Long has studied hope, the actual quality of hope, and found that it is the absence of it is critical. So to our health, to our well-being, in a longitudinal investigation, hope proved to reduce the all-cause mortality. So I love hearing you say that because certainly we definitely want to inspire hope. And we know that since the mind and body communicate on such an intimate level, that that hope is, is biochemical and it really does have real world effects that, that influence outcome. Do you think hope changes your DNA? Well, what we can't exactly, I don't think research would tell us that, but what we do know is that how we think and feel in any given moment ex uh, affects the way the DNA is actually expressed, the way those genes are either turned on and off. And so certainly hope would be um, critical to that. But we, we run a little bit of a risk with the definition of hope. I think that there are, um, there, especially with the emphasis on positive psychology, sometimes hope is disguised um, in a way that, well, I should actually say cheap optimism can be disguised as hope. And this kind of optimism is inversely linked with survivorship and longevity. So we have to make sure when we're thinking of hope, we actually have to make sure we're not, um, it, it, that it's actually not just a um, type of optimism. So what qualifies you to be the harbinger of hope? I know it's <laughs> your wonderful bio, but I want you to explain it to my audience. 
Oh, well, you, my my graduate degree, my undergraduate degree is in behavioral science. My graduate degree is in health psychology or applied psychoneuroimmunology. And my doctor, my PhD is in human development and learning. And my um, dissertation actually was on whether hope can be primed in chronic pain. So um, I kind of bridged the uh, create a bridge from research to practical application in this field that colloquially we think of it as mind-body medicine. Um, but again, you can get a mind-body pedicure in Atlanta just around the corner. So it's important to, to define what we really mean in the field as mind-body medicine. And it's really this um, communication and the chemicals involved in all the organ systems and how they dialogue with each other and the things we can do that either promote a healthy dialogue or hinder that healthy dialogue. So you were once, and I don't know if this is contemporary at this point, if this is current, are you still affiliated with our good friend, Dr. Bernie Siegel? Oh my goodness, I just love him so much. And so when you say affiliated, um, he is, he remains, of course, someone dear to me and we um, can communicate. He's just so lovely. Um, I was the national program director for his organization, ECAP, where I designed um, a program for Helen and Harry Gray Cancer Center. Um, but ECAP is under someone else right now. So um, since moving to Atlanta, I have been affiliated with um, local cancer centers and regional national cancer centers out of Atlanta. And what do you do for these cancer centers? Cancer centers Are they alternatively based integrative functional medicine cancer centers or more mm -hmm. traditional? And No, these are traditional cancer centers. And that's what's so great about this work is it really does bridge the distance between um, many people think of this as being the sole proprietary um, uh, world really of functional or integrative medicine. And that can be true. I actually have a private practice um, in a functional medicine center where I work with people individually, but the programs that I designed have been implemented 20 years running um, in that in, in traditional cancer centers that teach individuals how to access and promote this healthy um, these healthy biochemicals that can change outcome. And so collectively, these skills and strategies have been recognized uh, by insurance companies. I mean, this is just, there's just so much data that collectively these methods have been shown to uh, improve uh, all cause, reduce all cause mortality and improve outcome from almost every condition. This isn't just about cancer, but autoimmunity and um, blood sugar dysregulation, chronic pain, um, it just you name it, these methods have been shown to improve that, that outcome. So the issue, the problem is, is they're not well understood or well integrated outside of the research field. So I've really been fortunate that these um, that uh, oncologists have recognized the value, the research behind the methods, and this evidence-based approach has been uh, well received. And then the book, of course, that kind of ties it all together, uh, representing the flagship program that is being Im implemented in these centers, um, that has also been 
really well received. It's received a lot of great feedback. And I think the reason for that is because it documents the evidence. So you have uncovered, unearthed, researched survivors, skills or survivors traits, if I'm not mistaken. So what would those be? Well, you know, um, to be to, I actually did not uncover these. They were really, and thank you for helping me to highlight that. Is uh, th there's a body of evidence, a well constructed body of evidence. I just happened to teach and include it in my book, but um, but you but, brought it out to the effect that weren't you? Wasn't your book on the Oprah Winfrey Show at one point? Well, I was on Oprah and it was well, that works. <laughs> that works. It was <laughs> but um but certainly there's there's just a, a beautiful body of, of work now on these traits. And I to answer your question more specifically, I really try to synthesize uh the work of these wonderful people who have who have led the way. And with survivor traits, there are some interesting stuff way back. In the 50s, there were a couple of psychiatrists by the name of Rahe and Holmes who called thousands of medical charts. And they came up with a list of life events, both good and bad, that um, if a particular individual, each life event was given a particular numerical value. And if the score totaled a certain amount in a 12 month period of time, it was predictive of becoming seriously ill the following year. Mm. So this was known and is known as the life event checklist. And it was so accurate that it literally established the relationship between stressful life disease and illness. And because of that, um, for decades, individuals thought, well, there's really nothing you can do about this. Until in the 80s, um, a psychologist began to turn their attention to individuals who, despite high numbers on the scale, did not become ill. And they looked at these individuals to see if they were a little different than the rest of us, and they were. They had a collection of traits known um, that researchers dubbed the three C's for control, commitment, and challenge. And these were folks who, when faced with catastrophic, perhaps life events, they were able to look at that situation, not as an end point, but a turning point. And they were able to exhibit a high degree of commitment to the self. And then finally for control, they were able to look at the whatever was happening and cultivate a sense of self-mastery that regardless of what was happening around them, they had an inner locus of control. So these three C's um, are things that it turns out in the 90s, it was discovered that these three C's were things that people who aren't naturally stress hardy like myself could learn and practice and implement and have the same immunoprotective benefits as someone who was not naturally um, resilient. And so, yeah, very exciting. So let me backtrack a little bit. What are the most life altering events that can put you on the road to disease? Well, you can Google, folks can Google this LEC or life event checklist. It's still, you know, they'll find it online and you can take the, the questionnaire, but it's not so much the events themselves 
as it is the way we respond to them. And that's exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but you know what I think of when you see two people that are married for like 70 years or something like that. And one of the, one of the spouses dies, the other one dies shortly thereafter. Oh, obviously the death of a spouse divorce I'm I'm just thinking out loud of what those real catastrophic events might be. Absolutely. And you're correct. And those are on the LEC. And it's, you know, for example, the death of the spouse is particularly um, folks who've been married 50 or more years in a, in a high risk category after that loss. So I think knowing this, it's really great for family, friends, the individual themselves to, um, be able to do as much as they can personally to take really good care of themselves during these um, during these high risk periods of time. So how do you become resilient? I mean, we're all faced with all kinds of issues, COVID, pe- people that are dying as you get into your 60s and 70s. How do you become more resilient? How do you bounce back better? Well, this is the, I mean, such a, such a beautiful question and something that we could talk for hours about. So it's, it's, a, it can be challenging to get that into just a, a few pieces here. But I think since you mentioned COVID, one of the most important things is how we're perceiving the world. If we perceive the world as a very dangerous and threatening place, it actually promotes a sympathetic nervous system overdrive. So the sympathetic nervous system becomes highly active because of that worldview, that threatening worldview. And when we want to heal, recover, or prevent issues, we want a hefty dose of that parasympathetic nervous system to come on board. And that's the um, nervous system that is involved in repair and 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 healing so when we are you know we can perceive a threat particular type of danger and that can be totally appropriate we really want our body to move into threat mode and launch all those fabulous chemicals that can help us survive but that wasn't intended to be long term that wasn't intended to go on all day all week and certainly not all year So we need to be very aware of how we're perceiving the world, our worldview, uh, the beliefs we hold about um, our internal sense of safety. And this kind of segues over into meaning. Um, Viktor Frankl, no one writes about meaning better than Viktor Frankl. And uh, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is one of the top 10 uh, books by the U.S. Library of Congress, uh, most I think it's over 10 million copies sold worldwide on how important this sense of meaning is to surviving catastrophic experiences. 
Hi, my friends. Before I go any further, let me take a moment to, to acknowledge my sponsor, Unikey Health at UnikeyHealth.com, which is your universal key to health since 1992. I have been a spokesperson for this company for over 30 years. They're the home of all my weight loss plans, the Fat Blasting Bio Builder, which has been featured in national magazines. They also carry the ultimate brain support and the magnesium multitasker. So whether it's weight loss, internal cleansing, or just targeted health support, go to unikeyhealth.com. Tell them Anne Louise sent you. Would you explain to some of my younger listeners who Viktor Frankl was? Oh, yes, I'd love to. He, um, he was a psychiatrist and neurologist who was imprisoned in three, if not four, uh, concentration camps in World War II, including the most infamous Auschwitz. And as he was there, he began to notice who lived, who died, the the trajectory of the totality of the experience there. And when he, when he, when he lived, um, he found out when he came home, he had lost every member of his immediate family with the exception of his sister, Stella. So he lost everything basically um, in this war. And he found that for individuals who were able to find meaning and suffering combined with a high degree of self-worth. These individuals were able to withstand the disease and deprivation of the camps. So for us, wherever we may be living, whatever we may be facing, we can dig deep and, and do some repair work, you know, repair our sense of self-worth our feeling like we are precious, that we are a treasure. Really looking inside and, and patching up some of the holes that may appear in our, in our meaning, or enhancing the meaning we may experience after a dark night of the soul, whether through diagnosis or loss of a child or spouse or good friend. So all of these are times a clarion call for us to really um, reach out and um, explore how we can enhance the meaning and the value system that we've created for ourselves. So isn't this really all about stress on some level, Brenda? Yes. Chronic stress versus acute stress. Mm -hmm. You're so right because we are designed to do well with acute stress. Our bodies are sophisticated and there's you know, fabulous clotting methods there to keep us from bleeding to death when, when we're under threat and our digestion stops so we can have access to, to insulin, glucose, uh, our brain works differently. So acute stress is, it, we're just really, it, we have a beautiful design for this, but when it's chronic, those same changes over time work against us rather than for us. And I don't know about your listeners, but certainly for me, it's easy to adapt to chronic stress. It's easy to get used to it, not to even recognize that we're operating under this kind of chronic stress. So I think that's one of the challenges um, that many people might face. So have you found that nutrition is a key? 
Well, I think you are the woman to answer this question. So um, <laughs> this- I, think, I think it's critical. I, I live on magnesium. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah, I think it's involved in, isn't it like over 500 different enzymatic reactions in the body? Isn't isn't that magnesium? Indeed. It's the all-time chill pill. I love it. And I take, I take, I take it every night before bed. And um, so I'm I'm really glad to hear you talking about sense of nutrition can certainly play such a such a role because we need the raw materials to make those repairs, those cellular repairs. And if we don't have the raw material, it's just not going to happen. So But if we're also under chronic stress, it affects the way the intestines are able to absorb the little villi. um, Am I pronouncing that right? Villi or villi? villi. Okay, thank you. Um, The way those little villi actually work under chronic stress, they aren't um, very functional. They're not able to really absorb um, and do their job with those micronutrients. We also don't do a good job just digesting our food with chronic stress. So I think we have to, to get the most out of our food, practicing some you know, de-stress methods and it helps us to be able to utilize the good food we're ingesting. So what are your favorite de-stress methods, technologies, strategies? Um, well, I'm kind of a naturally high stress person that works hard <laughs> to, to get join the club. So am I. So <laughs> I feel a need to disclose this, you know, so oh, I know so much about this. And whenever I'm sick, my father says, I've got a great book for you to read. You know, it's like, your book um, can beat the odds. Yeah. So I, um, I think breathing for me is the counters, the, the, the real cornerstone. So diaphragmatic breathing, is number one, because we really have got to get the sympathetic nervous system off, you know, out of the way. So the diaphragmatic breathing is essential. And I'll use several different um, types of diaphragmatic breathing if I have the time um, for during meditation, etc. But just on the fly, making sure my breath is not in my chest, making certain that it's staying, you know, in the diaphragm and the tummy It would be uh, absolute essential. And then I also every day use some type of imagery. So um, depending on what's happening in my body, if there's something medical going on, then the imagery will be tailored to that. If not, it will be more general and holistic in nature, but some kind of imagery. And those two things together, I would say are daily um daily practices and then certainly using music and psychoacoustic sound and um and then of course the more cognitive pieces that you and I have been talking about with analyzing what am I really believing about the situation or believing about myself in that situation that could be causing me stress and what about affirmations and mantras you know, I'm, you just have such great questions. I, I could talk to you all day long, such great questions. You know, affirmations are great as long as they're not used as a type of denial. Ah, I, I love that. You know, any of these skills that you and I have been referring to can be taken out of context. And I appreciate this interview because 
Um, for example, if we're living in a, a household where we don't feel safe, um, there's a threat of verbal or physical violence, we don't want to necessarily walk around trying to do diaphragmatic breathing all day, overriding our brain's attempts to alert us to danger. So it's kind of the same with affirmations. We want to pay attention. What's what's real? What's happening? And then I we can use the affirmation to work with what we're already doing to make those changes. You know, off offline, I guess, off what did they say off mic in this day and age? Yeah. You told me that you have a little rescue dog. Would you explain the value of that for my listeners? Oh, you know, I just, I, we, my husband and I are just, we love dogs <laughs> and um, we just, uh, you know, always look for a pup um, that, that needs, that needs love and care. And this little, little, her name is Poppy. And she was adopted from a meth, a rescued from a meth house, actually. Oh. And um, she is doing really well and we just love her to pieces. So it's good for us and it's good for her. And I think you and I were talking right before for the interview, we've got thunderstorms happening here in Atlanta and she was freaking out. And, um, and now she's just, even though the storm was happening, she's in her crate and she's all hunk right beside me here with some blankets and she's doing really well. So why do you think your book was so well received? What did you do differently than a lot of other authors that talk about the same topics, Brenda? You know, for me, I think it's because I, there's over 300 original research articles cited and they're all in the end notes. And to me, I know when I was first learning some of these things, it can sound a little uh, too good to be true or too wild or too. And so when you're reading this in JAMA um, and classic, um, classic uh, peer reviewed journals, it gives it, it really underscores the uh, value, the evidence behind the method. And so because I work in medicine, I think it's been wonderful to have people with, you know, traditional coming from uh, traditional uh, training to, to recognize that these are um, valid and evidence-based methods. So to me, I think that was one of the pieces. And then the other was that um, the program had been running for 13 years when I wrote the book. And so the stories of individuals who have gone through the six-week program are woven all through the book. And to me, they're the real heroes. We've got the research, um, the, the researchers are my heroes, and then the patients who put this into play are the, re are the, are the heroes of the book. So to me, that um, was a real privilege to be able to put their stories. Can you um, give us a little bit of a sneak peek on one of those survivor stories? Oh, wow. Well. Oh, my goodness. Just pick, there, pick one. There's so many. Um, there, there was, you know, a woman that uh, just really touched my heart. She was uh, early 40s and undergoing chemotherapy for inflammatory breast cancer and um, getting ready for surgery. And she had been doing imagery and she had imagined that all the cancer cells were like, a, do you remember the Etch-a-Sketch back in the day, the Etch-a-Sketch? I think you can still get them today, but those magnetic boards where they're oh, little, yes. 
Yes, yes. And you could draw all the magnetic pieces together. And so she imagined that the cancer cells were like those magnetic shards. And she was using an Etch-a-Sketch to bring all of those cells at the nipple of each breast, because she knew when um, the mastectomy happened that, that that was the farthest place away from her, her, the rest of her body and that they would, that would be removed. So she received a phone call from her oncologist to give her the report. And the oncologist told her, you wouldn't, you won't believe this, but the only place we found there was any cancer, the pathologist found where it was in the nipple of each breast. Mm-hmm. And I think there's stories like that, that are just, um, I mean, we might be able to read about imagery and, uh, and, and how it works, but when we hear stories like that, and it, it really, it, it really deepens our belief in the body's ability to respond to images. So give us another sneak peek. I am really dying to know what these survivor traits are. Are they ones we would recognize easily? Okay. So, so three of them would be the control commitment and challenge. Um, So we're, you and I would be looking for ways in our lives, maybe where we exhibit these traits without even thinking much about it. And then other areas where maybe we're, we're lacking, you know, I might have all three C's in my professional life, but if I'm dealing with um, a personal situation with a, with, with a teenager, uh, then that may be a challenge for me to execute or to employ these three C's. So it's great to Kind of look and see where am I rocking and rolling with these and where might I need a little bit of boost. In addition to that, there's something called explanatory style. Mm-hmm. And that's how you and I explain the so-called negative or bad events of our lives. And this was an interesting um, investigation. It was a longitudinal Harvard investigation where they followed a group for decades, hundreds of people for decades, and they found that individuals who explained the, um, you know, the the negative or the bad events of their lives with this uh, idea of learning and growing from those events, that they actually um, had fewer illnesses and they lived longer than those who defined those events all negatively. So while something may happen that, you know, you and I definitely don't like, we haven't benefited from it, that we can find, if we dig deep, we might be able to find a way that that has helped us grow. And I think that's starting to, has really informed the um, this idea of post-traumatic growth. And we're seeing that emerge from, um, all different kinds of survivorships, whether it's from a catastrophic diagnosis or a house fire, um, whatever it may be, this idea that we can grow from trauma. Mm. Why do you think autoimmunity is on the rise? I know you, you, you've you concentrated on devastating diagnosis like cancer, for example, but do you have any insight into autoimmunity? Well, you know, there's um, different uh, different medical experts have different ways of of capturing uh, what we're seeing and capturing the data. 
that's where it can be difficult to put words to feelings that can sometimes be linked to an increase in blood pressure and some autoimmunity, but that can be taught. So I think when we learn to support ourselves at a deep level and to have words for feelings, to actually not just bypass our feelings with a Pollyanna perspective, but really go deep, identify what we're feeling, give it some language, What's the narrative? What are we believing? And then slowly upgrade that narrative so that we can support ourselves more completely. That's the real heart and soul of the work. So what are you doing these days? Oh, well, I'm enjoying my my private practice and um, doing- How do people uh, get in touch with you, Brenda? Oh, my website is my name, brendastockdale.com. And that has email, phone, et cetera. And, um, and then I'm also really enjoying doing a little bit of um, analysis for a current research project by one of my former professors, um, actually on imagery. And so doing a little bit of the data analysis on that. Um, and we'll be also putting together uh, some an article on the results of a study on hope and subliminal primates. So those are a couple of fun projects that are happening in the background. Parting words for First Lady of Nutrition podcast listeners. Parting, parting words would just be to enjoy. Look for ways to enjoy. How can we find awe and joy in everyday life? I love it. May you enjoy the rest of your afternoon, and I hope that it's thunderstorm free. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure and a privilege. The pleasure and privilege is mine. And I want to thank my listeners for listening in and tuning in yet once again to First Lady of Nutrition. You've made us rank internationally with our little podcast. So I appreciate every single one of you. Kisses, hugs, and shalom. Shalom of Racha. please don't forget to subscribe and like First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Thank you so very much.